HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at... 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, an architect walks into a restaurant and what does he see? And this is not a joke, but Glenn Coben, founder of Glenn & Co. Architecture, tells all in an architect's cookbook, illustrating a life focused on making food look better through ambience and decor. From concept to rendering, construction to finishing touches, Michelin-starred establishment to taco joints, even barbecue and steakhouses, Coben has interpreted chef's visions such as Alex Stupak of Empion, Gabriel Carruther of his eponymously named location, so you can eat with your eyes way past the plate. And we're going to go way into the past, 2010, when you were first a guest on the food scene um, as an advisor for Calentro. And um, looking back at my notes, I, I, I saw that there were a couple projects... Uh, at Mohegan Suns, a Starbucks, I believe. Uh, there was a stage deli uh, project that you were working on at that time. Um, how'd those go? So stage deli never really, never happened, but it led to Starbucks, and Starbucks ended up opening. It was a really neat project. Uh, learned a lot about coffee, a lot about Starbucks and how they work. And then it led to a project for Gino Ariyama, who is the uh, coach of the Connecticut women's Husky basketball team. So we did a big food hall, big food court there. And 
it's interesting symmetry. We're opening a food hall right now in Minnesota. So I completely forgot about Stage Deli, kind of tried to forget about Starbucks <laughs> and just remember that we did a food hall. So I should have said that when I interviewed to do it. It might have gotten us the job a little bit uh, more firmer than the way we got it. Did did you have awareness of architecture in restaurants and kitchens when you were growing up? Like, do you remember what your home kitchen looked like? What your favorite restaurant looked like? Well, I remember my home kitchen. I remember sitting there watching my mom cook. My mom, I always thought she was a fantastic cook. Um, and then I met my wife and her mom was a phenomenal cook. And then I started working with all these chefs and I realized that my mom, who passed about a year ago, she was a terrible cook. Um, but she made a few things really well, and it was really the soul of what she brought to cooking versus what was really on the plate. Uh, but I could do a perspective drawing of what our kitchen looked like. It was pretty small. It was in New Jersey. Um, but an awareness of dining. Dining for us growing up was going to Rudy's Pizza or going to the China Chalet. That's, that was fine dining for us. And, and pizza shops and Chinese places had a specific look to them. Completely. Can can you explain that in a couple bullet points? Well, a pizza place had uh, uh, smoky mirrors with little diamonds that connected them in the corners, uh, red tufted banquettes. And it was interesting as we were beginning to work on Carbones with, uh, with Jeff Zelaznik and, and Mario, we started going around to different classic Italian restaurants, not pizzerias, but to classic Italian restaurants, Italian-American. And that's what the pizzerias of where I grew up, where you grew up, where we all grew up, we know what they look like. You can close your eyes and you can picture exactly what they look like. And so I think that memory quotient, that memory aspect is what we try to bring to our projects. Um, it's funny, when I went to... Um, the the grill and I had the duck I closed my eyes and I felt like I was having the Peking duck from the China Chalet and that's either a compliment or not but I mean that mustardy sauce it's just the memories and that's what I love about designing restaurants and love about working with chefs is just how you bring those memories into real life or keep certain things intact I know you have uh, a house in Westchester and in older ranch style house at that. Um, how do you make something contemporary without, you know, losing the bones of what's already built? Uh, you know, just really paying attention to the details, paying attention to whether it's a kitchen, how, I mean, I don't design kitchens, but I did my kitchen at home with my wife. And we really looked at that space as not so the, the house itself dictated where the island was going to go, where each of the component parts of the kitchen were going to go. But we really looked at the space as this is really where we were going to live. This is where we we're going to spend our time. So I think you just have to be smart about listening to um, what your gut tells you and, and looking and paying attention to uh, flow, pay attention to lighting, pay attention to where the sun comes up and where the sun goes down. Are your favorite restaurants, your favorite places to eat, or your favorite in terms of architect architecture? Oh, boy. Um, my favorite places to eat are about the food and about the community. Um, my pla favorite places from a design perspective, sometimes I just have to 
think carefully about this because I don't want to piss anybody off. <laughs> but um, I like to go out and see restaurants that are put together really well, that are designed effectively, that there was thought that went into it. But it shouldn't, I don't like going to places that are about design. I like going to places that are really about the, the ambiance contributes to the experience, but the experience is about service and the experience is about the food. And I always, I talk about restaurant design as if it's a triangle. And I don't believe that triangle is an equilateral triangle. The legs are food, service, and design or decor. So the triangle is this perfect object. If one of the legs breaks, it's no longer a triangle. So each of those legs needs to, needs to exist and work in harmony with the other legs. So I, you can go to a restaurant. I can go to a restaurant and understand that it was not designed properly from a service standpoint where people are bumping into each other. How do you get the dishes out of the dining room? How do you get the glasses out of the dining room? How do you bring service in? You know, even before you were designing restaurants or maybe contemporaneously, you also worked for Nike as a director of store planning and uh, design. And when building these Nike towns, it, it it's about having some consistent pieces that people can, you know, go from one Nike town to the next and recognize it as a Nike town. So how do you how do you take something that's so consistent, so branded, and then give something so singular its own personality wow i mean i love nike was probably my favorite job of all time um i grew up with sports i grew up in the 70s in new jersey we were not allowed to based on my parents and where they grew up we weren't allowed to wear adidas or puma so when nike was born it was a revelation that we had performance footwear and athletic apparel that we could actually wear so to get a phone call asking if I was interested in taking this job, I jumped at it because not only were they about sports, which I loved, they were about design. So if you take the swoosh and say the swoosh is the brand umbrella, how do you design a store that in New York or in Boston or in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle, each of the sports stories is different, but under the umbrella of the swoosh, it's about sports. It's about um, performance, the brand values. But you want to tell the local stories. And for me, um, as an architect and as a designer and doing what I do on a daily basis in designing restaurants or hotels that are unique to each story, that's where I learned that storytelling for a brand doesn't have to look like Old Navy everywhere. It doesn't have to look like the Gap everywhere. It can be locally relevant and tell a local story while still relating to the overarching brand mission and ideals. You know, that, that size and scale is fascinating because I know you also work for David Rockwell and there were theaters and football stadiums involved. So sure. how do you go from that massive to a you know, micro scale for a single restaurant in New York? You know, it's, it's distilling every single project down to its, ba its basic stories. So... Um, when we worked with Alex Stupak and his partners on Empeo and El Pastor, this was a 1,600-square-foot space in the East Village. And we were also working on uh, Gabriel Kreuther, which is 14,000 square feet. So you bring the energy, <clears throat> excuse me, you bring the energy, you bring the, um, 
the thought process of solving the problem, which is telling the story. And the story doesn't necessarily, you know, there are books that are 300 pages and there are books that are 30 pages. So you want to tell each one appropriately. And what I love about each of these projects is that they look unique. And that's what I learned when I work for David, when I work with David, that these stories are really, um, they ebb and flow based upon size. Size does not matter in a sense of the story. It's just how complex it's going to be at, at the end. In your nearly 20 years of Glen & Co., wow. uh, a, a lot has changed. And, you know, there have been projects that you have built that have come and gone. Um, there have been, you know, our favorite restaurants that have come and gone. What do you think have been the consistent threads through restaurant architecture in the last couple decades? Well, I mean, consistent threads are that there's a chef in a kitchen cooking and the equipment has, I mean, you're cooking with fire, you need to exhaust the smoke and the grease, and there's a front door. The way the, the ground rules have changed incredible, in an incredible manner because of the awareness of people, people's awareness for design, people's awareness for food, people's, their awareness of where food is coming from. People are so much smarter today, so much better informed today about where things are coming from. And the stories, um, we're still telling stories, but the expectations are so much higher. And it costs so much more today. So it's, um, of the last 19 years, we've seen, um, and I loved Andrew Friedman's book because it really is a, uh, an incredible primer in terms of what has happened in the industry over the last 20 or 30 years. But to have had a front row seat to see the change in technology to see that when Bill Grimes would read his review at midnight on a Tuesday night, and now today we're looking at it on Tuesday afternoon. So uh, the speed of information, the access to information is so much greater and so much quicker. And goddamn Instagram, that everyone <laughs> sees a place before they even enter that space. Right. It used to be that someone would sneak in to uh, behind a barricade. Um, but now they're getting these beautiful photographs and renderings before it's even open. I was one of Eater's first photographers, myself yeah. and Noah Kalina, and we'd get these first looks. Right. And I would literally be the first one in restaurants where we'd have to crop so kindly because there was a uh, paper on the windows and you no know, banquets that weren't finished. Um, exactly. You can't really do that today. No, no, it's hard to keep a secret today. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and talk about all the amazing projects you've worked on in the last couple decades. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. 
Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Here today with Glenn Coben of Coben and Company, as well as an architect's cookbook, this amazing compendium of the last 20 years of restaurant architecture, not only in New York, but around the country, around the world, your your own projects. Um, and one of the most fascinating I found is what is the modern day Batard, Nig Corton, and prior <laughs> to that, Montrachet. Montrachet, um, yeah. You know, a legendary space in Tribeca uh, that's had spectacular chefs, uh, you know, crazy owners. And o- only one owner. <laughs> maybe he's schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, there's Tracy Andrew. Um, how do you take something that has such legacy and create it anew? Well, Batard was not that new. Batard really was. I mean, if you if you think about Montrachet, I, I think that Batard was Montrachet 2.0, but Corton tried something completely different, and it really pivoted Montrachet. So when we took over the space and Drew, Drew brought in uh, John Winterman and Marcus Glocker, uh, he had asked me to sit down directly and only with uh, John and Marcus, and we talked about what their vision was. And they wanted a neighborhood restaurant. They wanted it to be... A little boisterous, um, some something that wasn't just uh, fine dining where it was special occasion. That it was really part of the Tribeca neighborhood, which is what Montrachet was. But Carton pivoted away from that and became that sort of special, up on a pedestal restaurant. So with Batard, we took the bones of Carton and we softened it up. So what Stephanie Goto, who's a wonderful designer here in New York, created the shell of the restaurant. We didn't have the time or the budget to change that, and Drew did not want, didn't have the, the the heart to be able to do that because it was really a beautiful restaurant in itself. So, we brought in a decorative painter. We made it feel like it was nicotine stained. We lowered the ceiling a little bit. We took some of the mo- modernity out of it, the starkness, and we softened it up. We put down a wood floor instead of carpet. Um, there were a lot of complaints about how loud it was, but it was really designed to be a neighborhood. Um, not a bistro, but something that was boisterous to a point where, yeah, it was a little loud. It wasn't fine dining, but you were getting fine, finely crafted, beautifully presented, beautifully prepared food. So, but it was accessible. It was reachable. It was not a special occasion place. It can be a special occasion place, but it doesn't need to be. Especially if you get John Winterman behind the bar. Yep. Um, one of my favorite cocktails in New York City is the Old Dirty Bastard. Oh, uh, the Old Dirty Bastard, and which the, is in the cookbook. You, and that's so cool that you actually are able to pair these architect, you know, architectural schemes with um, recipes that have as much a foundation in the place as what it looks like. Well, to me, the 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 amazing thing about the cookbook, personally, is just the contributions and the generosity of each of the chefs and restaurateurs who participated. So for them to give a recipe was uh, it was it was so heartwarming and as we know chefs are just incredibly generous within this industry to start with but um i did not need to curate it in a sense when i sat down with john and marcus and asked them for recipes um 
I didn't need to say, hey, can you put the dirty old bastard in? He knew that's what it should be. And so. the roasted beets linzer, which is another favorite of mine. Correct. Correct. Um, but this, this, it's not a reinterpretation, as you said. It's exactly what the restaurant is. But th- there's an instance, uh, a fascinating case of Romera, which was this <laughs> space in the Dream Hotel. Um, when, when did it go up? 2012, I believe. You, was that the same year it closed? Yeah. <laughs> well, because uh, you were nominated for a James Beard Award for that design. Um, but you were taking this avant-garde chef's, uh, you know, an established chef. Where was he from initially? Well, uh, Dr. Romero is not a chef. He taught, well, he taught himself to, sh- to, to cook, but he was a uh, trained neurologist from Barcelona. And he opened his own restaurant just outside of Barcelona called Romera. And the owner of Dream Hotels went to the restaurant. It was, it was on everybody's list to try and get to. It was not uh, Il, Il um if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but it was on... It was on the list, so to speak. So people would go to his restaurant. And his restaurant was... I went there a couple of times during the development of, of uh, Romero in New York. And it was quite a treat. It was quite a quite a, an experience to dine with uh, Dr. Romero. Uh, his mind was always working. But he was so honest and so pure in how he thought about cooking and how he thought about presentation. But New York was not ready. I don't think New York is still ready for something like that. I mean, I remember the water service, the flavored water service that were, I believe, on induction burners and scented in different ways. Beautifully presented. uh, I think, what did they, what did one of the critics call it? Bong water? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But it was interesting. If you really took it to that level, he was pairing, um, instead of pairing wine, he was pairing water that was flavored to complement each of the dishes and to get your mind to understand how to taste each of these dishes. So he was really inside your head, which was weird. I mean, it was really, really strange. Um, And if you gave yourself over to it, uh, it was a magnificent experience. I didn't say magnificent meal. It was a magnificent experience. <laughs> well, then how do you it was get theater? How do you get past the de- design convention uh, of the checkerboard? Because one of his famous dishes, and I believe that's the recipe in the book, correct, is of you know uh, a checkerboard of different purees and things on a plate with a protein on top. But how do you not have that exist all around the restaurant? In terms of the design of the restaurant? Yeah. Well, the design of the restaurant was really a, a backdrop to something like the checkerboard. So imagine this beautiful plate coming out onto the table with a checkerboard of dried herbs and spices and different flavors that are creating this, this checkerboard. And the protein is put on top of the plate. This is, this is theater. This is experience, experiential dining. The protein is put on. They pour a broth. So it's a three-step process in terms of service so to and then when the broth is engages with the dried checkerboard of flavors it begins to create an aroma and when you cut through the protein and you'd swirl they would say swirl tonight swirl clockwise and you know maybe the last time you swirl counterclockwise and it changed the characteristics of the dish so having dined on that having had that that 
dinner in Barcelona, how do you create a space to complement that experience, not compete? And that's really what we try to do as designers and architects when we create each of these spaces is we're not the front, we're not the main event. The main event is the food. The main event is the service. How do we, and we've created incredibly different looking restaurants that really relate to the story. But Romero was, how do you create a simple backdrop that allows these dishes, these experimental dishes to to live and breathe? But just like having that, you know, broth poured on those herbs, every diner is going to have a different experience. So you have to have that, you know, in your head when you're designing a place. And let, let's talk about Gabriel Crother because I, you know, I knew him and his food very well when he's at the Modern. But when you put your name titularly at the restaurant, it has to reflect you even more so. So what what is the story behind designing Gabriel Carruther and what elements of himself can you see in that design? I can see Gabriel every step along the way. And the from the front door, which is a uh, antique horse's bridle that one of the partner's wives bought in a, in a um, flea market in Strasbourg to... Probably the best example, Michael, is when the bar stools were uh, brought into the restaurant. Um, Emily, the the beverage director, the psalm at the time, she was doing training at the bar, and the bar stools were being brought into the restaurant. And she put up her hand and she said, "Stop!" Not to the people bringing in the bar stool, but to the people she was training and talking to. And she said, she was near tears, and she she was from Alsace, and Obviously, Gabrielle is from Alsace, and the back of the bar stool has a heart cut into it's cut all the way through the back of the bar stool. And uh, we spent a lot of time. It was the last design element that we had figured out because we needed to get it right, and we were not getting it right. And I was I was dining with a chef at Batard, actually, and I did a sketch of it, and Drew comes walking by, and he goes, oh, I'm not going to do a Drew impersonation, <laughs> but um, he goes, oh, it's a, um, it's a bar stool from Alsace. And Gabrielle saw Drew's reaction and knew that we had figured it out. We did about four uh, prototypes until we got it right. But what Emily said, and she fully understood, is that the shutters in the Alsace-Lorraine region, when the shutters are closed, they're closed. You don't see anything. But when you open them up, there's a little heart. And the heart is the symbol of hospitality. It's the pineapple in Alsace. So it's, she said, this is Chef Gabriel Kreuther welcoming you to his restaurant. So each of the elements that are in that restaurant I can point to whether it's the custom stork wallpaper or it's the copper bar back bar with the acid drop droppings that is from the local uh, pottery style. There are all these different things that relate to Gabrielle, not to me, but to his background. The custom light fixtures, he showed us a photograph of him standing in front of, I believe it was his uncle's butcher shop. And there was a, a lamp in the background, a street lamp. So we recreated that as a custom light fixture in the restaurant. Then say if you're a fixture in the New York dining scene like Alex Tupac, and you have three locations of Empion, which are all pretty different, and then you say, I'm going to do a giant version of Empion or iteration of that in Midtown. 
What is the conversation you have with a chef like that about a space so large, so massive, so ominous? Well, Alex is uh, extraordinary to work with because he he is so uh, clear in his intentions. Uh, so the mid the first restaurant we did for Alex and his partners was Al Pastor, and he and I spent a couple of couple of days, couple of nights in Mexico City. I think I re- I remember maybe one of those nights, um, but not certainly not every single night. But we really bonded and understood. It gave me an opportunity to understand how how he approaches putting together a menu, how he approaches putting together a restaurant, not design, but really. For us to succeed, we need to understand the vision of how they create their their uh, menus and their restaurants. So it makes our job easier when we understand that. So Midtown was uh, a daunting project. I would say in the 19 years that I've designed restaurants around the world, it was the most difficult restaurant ever. Um, just the engineering of it, not the design itself, but the limitations in the space. But as I said, Alex is, is unique and extraordinary, and we're really providing surfaces for artists to um, be the show in terms of the content within the restaurant. Certainly the food is the content and the data that goes into it, um, but the backdrop of that two-story space is, uh, was designed by one of the artists who had done some paintings in the other restaurants. And the sculpture in the middle is by a Brooklyn-based artist, Beata Reuthberg. Um And so we, we really tried to give each of the artists uh, ample opportunity to be able to do, to create uh, beautiful work within each of these restaurants. I mean, I love the Sylvia G portraits consistently ah, so, through Empion. But Sylvia did the whole backdrop. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's mind-blowing. And you mentioned those ceramics. Um, and There are a handful of the Beata stuff kind of on shelves as well. Yes. Um, how much of architecture is art or artists or artwork? Well, I, I mean... I'm not like Howard Rourke. I'm not saying I do all this on my own. First of all, I have a team back in the office that are amazing architects and designers. But to say we're going to design every single surface of the place is where we just don't think that that's the right approach. If we can bring in local artists to add layers of information. Again, if you go back to the Nike story, and Nike is really about how do you make it locally relevant these artists give us that layer, additional layers of meaning, additional layers of, of information and design that make it that much richer. And look, we go to restaurants over and over again. I hope that when you go back a third or a fourth time, you'll notice another detail. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, 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 the artwork that's in there. The space is the space. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about how Del Posto was based on a Andrea Palladio uh, plan, and nobody understands that except for architecture architects. But that led to how to create the rest of the space. And I think that that's, that's the cool thing about what I do is creating these rooms, but giving off, giving over surfaces to other people to 
uh, play in the same sandbox. And if people don't care about that at all, at least there are recipes in the book. I mean, you yeah. had tacos al pastor, guacamole with pistachios, and your own seafood bolognese. Uh, yes. But there are so many great stories about some of the most luminous restaurants uh, around the country, and everyone should check out the book, An Architect's Cookbook, out today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Heritage Foods for sponsoring. And get your turkeys by November 8th. you got to get those turkeys. Frank Reese will be very happy. Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.